Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Whoever hears and believes this teaching embarks on the great vehicle and leaves the three realms. The three realms are greed, anger, and delusion. To leave the three realms means to go from greed, anger, and delusion back to morality, meditation, and wisdom. Greed, anger, and delusion have no nature of their own. They depend on mortals. And anyone capable of reflection is bound to see that the nature of greed, anger, and delusion is the Buddha nature. Beyond greed, anger, and delusion, there is no other Buddha nature. The sutras say, Buddhas have only become Buddhas while living with the three poisons and nourishing themselves on the pure Dharma. The three poisons are greed, anger, and delusion. Not thinking about anything is Zen. Once you know this, walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, everything you do is Zen. To know that the mind is empty is to see the Buddha. The Buddhas of the 10 directions have no mind. To see no mind is to see the Buddha. To give up yourself without regret is the greatest charity. To transcend motion and stillness is the highest meditation. Mortals keep moving and arhats stay still. But the highest meditation surpasses both that of mortals and that of arhats. People who reach such understanding free themselves from all appearances without effort and cure all illnesses without treatment. Such is the power of great Zen. Using the mind to look for reality is delusion. Not using the mind to look for reality is awareness. Freeing oneself from words is liberation. Remaining unblemished by the dust of sensation is guarding the Dharma. Transcending life and death is leaving home. Not suffering another existence is reaching the way. Not creating delusions is enlightenment. Not engaging in ignorance is wisdom. No affliction is nirvana. And no appearance of the mind is the other shore. When you're deluded, this shore exists. When you wake up, it doesn't exist. Mortals stay on this shore. But those who discover the greatest of all vehicles stay on neither this shore nor the other shore. They're able to leave both shores. Those who see the other shore as different from this shore don't understand Zen. Delusion means mortality. And awareness means Buddhahood. They're not the same. And they're not different. It's just that people distinguish delusion from awareness. When we're deluded, there's a world to escape. When we're aware, there's nothing to escape.
thank you all for being here in person, finally, for a session at New York's Endo, our 53rd anniversary session. There's a quote from William Faulkner who said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And Albert Einstein said concerning the past, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Einstein changed our thinking about time. His theories brought to light such concepts as time dilation, the way that time changes by gravitational field or by velocity such that someone in a very strong gravitational field has time slowed relative to someone in a normal gravitational field. And someone moving near the speed of light would likewise see time slowed relative to someone not moving. We're all familiar with the relativity of time from doing Zazen, when time can seem absolutely endless from one moment to the next while we're waiting for the bell to ring. Or on the fifth or sixth day of session, time can seem to fly by as we sit down and a few minutes later, it seems the bell is ringing already and we wonder what happened. And so 53 years have passed by from the time that this Zendo was first opened. 53 years ago, many of those who are present were probably not even born. At that time, I was 12 years old, and I don't think that I had ever heard the word Zen. Zen was not as much a part of the culture at that time as it is today, where you can hear Zen on television commercials and other media. I certainly had never read anything about Zen. The year was 1968. And it was an eventful year in the United States and around the world. It was the year of Martin Luther King's assassination the assassination of Robert Kennedy, of riots in many cities across the country, especially following the assassination of Martin Luther King, and riots in Chicago brought about by the anger and despair of a generation that saw the Vietnam War dragging on with countless Vietnamese killed and many American soldiers killed in a war that seemed pointless. 
And sometime between the assassination of Robert Kennedy and the election of Richard Nixon, an event happened in New York City that did not get very much notice outside of a few dedicated practitioners. This building opened. It was dedicated. The date of the dedication was September 15, 1968. And this temple, like many temples, is a very special place. In a real sense, every place is a special place. Every inch of ground is hallowed ground. But a temple is a special place because it is a place of power a place in which minds and hearts are opened and lives are changed. The course of a person's life may be changed by one encounter. In my case, 10 years after the opening of this temple, I came for a Thursday evening introduction to Zen. And within a couple of months had gone to Daibosatsu Zendo to do my first kese, and to dedicate myself to the practice of Buddha Dharma. On the altar and above the altar and in front of the incense burner, there are photographs of people who are essential to the establishment and continuation and growth of this temple. Above the altar, we have what could be thought of as our grandparents, Soin Roshi and Yasutani Roshi, who were essential to the training and Zen education of Edo Shimano Roshi, who is on the altar on the right-hand side. And on the other side of the altar are the benefactors, the material benefactors of not just New York Zendo, but Daibosatsu Zendo. They purchased this carriage house and contributed funds to the restoration and renovation of it to turn it into a living, breathing temple. They also purchased the, or provided the funds for the purchase of the large tract of land that the monastery was built on. You may or may not know the story of the benefactors Chester Carlson and Doris Carlson, whose great generosity made the physical structure here possible. Chester Carlson was an extraordinary man. The General Secretary of the United Nations, Uthant, 
said of him that he was a great and good man and to know him was to love him. He was born in 1906 and raised in poverty. Like so many people who are essential to Zen practice had a very difficult childhood. He began working when he was only eight years old. And by the time he was in high school, he was supporting his family. His father had tuberculosis and his mother had contracted malaria. His mother would die while he was in high school from tuberculosis. His father was chronically ill with tuberculosis. And so he was very, very poor and essentially responsible for the wherewithal of his family from a very young age. And yet he managed to go to a junior college where he did a work study program, working six weeks, studying six weeks, working six weeks, studying six weeks. And he did that for three years until he was able to transfer to Caltech where he majored in physics uh, with a minor in chemistry. And he graduated from Caltech deeply in debt. The tuition at Caltech in the late 1920s was $260 a year, which does not sound like very much when we think of it in terms of $2,021. But in the late 1920s, $260 a year was a princely sum. It was more money than Chester Carlson earned in a year as much as he tried to work in, during the summer and on weekends. He graduated with $1,500 of debt, which again, does not sound like a huge amount, but at $1930 with the year that he graduated, was a princely sum, $1,500. And he graduated at the beginning of the Great Depression. He wrote letters to over 80 different companies looking for employment and had no takers. And eventually through a stroke of good fortune, he was able to get a job in New York City moving all the way across the country to take a job as a research engineer in Bell Telephone Laboratories. And after a year, he moved from the research department to the patent department. But even while he was working, he was working in his spare time on inventions. He had a fertile and restless mind. He loved the graphic arts and early on when he was very young, was given a toy typewriter and eventually worked with a printing press. And he was very impressed with how difficult it was to get words into print. The process of, of producing a printed page was so cumbersome. And he thought there must be a better way. There must be a better way. <laughs> and he encountered a, an obscure journal of physics from Europe which described 
a process that intrigued him. And he worked on that process and refined it and worked and refined it. He became quite unpopular with his neighbors because he used his apartment as his workshop and um, managed to uh, make the entire building smell like rotten eggs by working with sulfur. And eventually his wife um, told him that he couldn't work in the apartment anymore. But um, her parents had an apartment in Astoria, Astoria, New York, uh, which he could use as a workshop. And so he and his assistant worked trying to find a way of printing that didn't involve chemicals, didn't involve a wet process, but a dry process. And the first image that they managed to produce was a simple image of the date of the experiment and the location. It said, 102238 Astoria. And that was the beginning of the Xerox Corporation. At first, it was called, the process was called electrophotography. But eventually, the name of the process was changed to. Xerography, which means dry writing. And because it sounded better and had more of a commercial zing, that was changed to Xerox. And because he had been working in the patent department in Bell Laboratories, he eventually left Bell Laboratories and went to work with another company and became the head of the patent department there. And then he went to night school, to law school and got his law degree and became a patent attorney. And so he was a scientist, a physicist, an inventor, and an attorney. And he created a process which today seems almost archaic because we've gone so far beyond the need for dry writing. We have all kinds of printers and scanners and copiers, and it seems so quaint. But at the time, the process was absolutely revolutionary. To copy a document at that time required a wet process or typists typing on carbon paper. And when Chester Carlson invented this process, he tried to sell the invention. And he offered it to 20 different companies, including IBM. And nobody saw the potential. And so he retained the rights. And eventually, 10 years after getting the process right the first time, he was working with a, another company that licensed the technology from him. And they developed the first Xerox printer which was an insanely complicated device. It took 39 separate steps to create a copy. But within 10 years, they had developed a process that was streamlined and made it so that most anyone could make a copy easily. 
And because so many different companies had not had any faith in his invention and he retained the rights, he became tremendously wealthy. At one time, Forbes magazine estimated that he was the richest man in America with a fortune of about $200 million, which again, sounds almost quaint when there are people now who are worth $200 billion. But at the time, that was just an insane amount of money. And he said that his goal was to die a poor man. And he set about giving away the vast majority of his fortune. He said that Forbes had overestimated his net worth by about $150 million because he had already given that amount away. But he was not just a rich man, but a good man. And very interested in all matters spiritual. He studied the Vedanta. He studied Buddhism. His wife, who was a graduate of my alma mater, Hunter College, just down the street here, had also gotten a degree from Union Theological Seminary and was very active in philanthropy and particularly in Buddhist philanthropy. The Xerox Corporation was based in Rochester, New York. And they donated money and land to Philip Kaplow Roshi to establish the Rochester Zen Center. And because they were New Yorkers, they also donated money to Ada Roshi and the Zen Study Society to establish this temple. So we owe a great deal of gratitude to our benefactors. Chester Carlson died of a heart attack four days after the dedication ceremony of New York Sendo on September 19, 1968. But his generosity and the echoes of his good heart are still with us. Because as Faulkner said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. A warm salute to Chester Carlson and his wife. And now on to Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma's wake up sermon. Bodhidharma is such a wonderful and complex figure in Buddhist history. And before I go into that, um, Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma 
is a figure of myth and legend as much as reality. We know almost nothing about his life for certain. We don't know for sure where he came from. Some sources say Southern India, some sources say Persia. Sources that were written long after his death say that he was the third son of an Indian king. Some sources say the family was devout and that his brothers and he were all devout followers of Buddhism. Other sources say that his brothers were jealous of him and tried to assassinate him. It's all legend. We know almost nothing about him. It said that he was the founder of Kung Fu at Shaolin Temple. And while it is relatively certain that he spent at least some time in Shaolin Temple, there is no good evidence that he had anything to do with Kung Fu. But that is part of his legend. It's said that he came to China either overland or by sea, depending on which source you see. And some sources say overland and by sea. Again, legend, we don't know. It said that when he arrived in China, he went to see the Emperor Wu and a very famous dialogue ensued which is the first koan in Hekikan Roku. And the Emperor Wu, who had used a good deal of the imperial treasure to build temples and stupas, including what was considered the largest temple ever built, which burned down a couple of decades later, asked Bodhidharma what merit he had accumulated through his generosity. And Bodhidharma said, no merit whatsoever. That by itself is a great koan. We don't know what was in the emperor's heart when he used the imperial treasure to build those things. We don't know if he was doing it to buy his stairway to heaven. We don't know what was in his heart when he asked this question of Bodhidharma. But Bodhidharma was very quick to shoot him down, which of course is not a thing that the emperor of China was used to having happen to him. And so after a bit more dialogue, Bodhidharma decided that this was not a propitious place to establish Zen. And he took his leave of the emperor and went to the north where it said that he sat in a cave for nine years. 
having no students and very little contact with other human beings. And perhaps that's why Bodhidharma's teaching is so weird. And I don't know what other word to use for it. You read Bodhidharma's sermons and they are incredibly dense. It's like biting into an iron ring. Almost every sentence reads like a koan. It's a one mind-blowing statement after another. This wake-up sermon, it reminds me that Rinzai would shake people and hit them to wake them up. But Bodhidharma used these words and the power of his presence, the power of his samadhi to shake people to their core. The essence of the way is detachment. And the goal of those who practice is freedom from appearances. Whoever hears and believes this teaching embarks on the great vehicle and leaves the three realms. So far, so good. Pretty standard stuff. But now comes the weird stuff. The three realms are greed, anger, and delusion. Okay. To leave the three realms means to go from greed, anger, and delusion back to morality, meditation, and wisdom. So far, so good. I think everybody can, can get behind those statements. Greed, anger, and delusion have no nature of their own. They depend on mortals. And anyone capable of reflection is bound to see that the nature of greed, anger, and delusion is the Buddha nature. I thought we were going beyond greed, anger, and delusion, but this is the Buddha nature. So, all sentient beings are fundamentally Buddha. Fundamentally, from the beginning, not something that happens once you leave greed, anger, and delusion behind. Not something that happens sometime in the future. But fundamentally, from the beginning, before you ever heard of Buddhism, or Zazen, before you ever got onto a cushion, the Buddha nature was inseparable from your being. And yet somehow we don't really believe it. Anyone capable of reflection is bound to see that the nature of greed, anger, and delusion is the Buddha nature. Beyond greed, anger, and delusion, 
there is no other Buddha nature. All of this dissatisfaction with who you are, all of the blame that we lay on ourselves for who we are. And yet, beyond who we are, there is no Buddha nature. The sutras say Buddhas have only become Buddhas while living with the three poisons and nourishing themselves on the pure dharma. The three poisons are greed, anger, and delusion. There's um, a slogan in the Lojong slogans. Three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue. The three objects are pleasant things, unpleasant things, neutral things. These objects breed in us, us mortals, greed, anger, and delusion, or grasping, aversion, and ignorance. We encounter a pleasant object, We want to hold on to We encounter an unpleasant object. And we want to push it away. No, no, no. Or we run away. Or we smash it. We encounter something neutral. And we get bored. We get bored. And either we fall asleep and stop paying attention. <clears throat> Or to amuse ourselves, we make up all kinds of fantasies. And that's delusion or ignorance. So three objects, three poisons. And how are they seeds of virtue? We'll get to that later. Not thinking about anything is Zen. Once you know this, walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, everything you do is Zen. To know that the mind is empty is to see the Buddha. To know that the mind is empty is to see the Buddha. How do you see that the mind is empty? The Buddhas of the Ten Directions have no mind. To see no mind is to see the Buddha. To give up yourself without regret is the greatest charity. We sometimes encounter within ourselves resistance to practice. And the resistance takes many forms. One form of resistance is, I don't have time for this. Another form of resistance is, I don't see the point. Another form of resistance is, 
well, this is selfish, spending all this time on myself. but to give up yourself without regret. This is Zazen. To give up yourself without regret. To give up the freedom that you have to do other things. To give up your body when you're sitting there with pain. To give up your agenda to give up whatever you might be doing to increase your enjoyment, your riches, to gather more pleasant objects, to give up the ability to move away from what's unpleasant in yourself and to have to sit with it, to sit with all of the steaming crap that is inside of you, to move beyond aversion, to give up ignorance and to look directly into the face of impermanence and dukkha and no self. To give up yourself without regret. Is the greatest charity. Transcend motion and stillness is the highest meditation. Remember, he's already said that once you know that not thinking about anything is Zen, and once you know this, walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, everything you do is Zen. So whether you are still, whether you are moving, whether you are lying down or cooking or sweeping or lighting incense or going to the bathroom, it's all Zen. To transcend motion and stillness is the highest meditation. Mortals keep moving and our hearts stay still. But the highest meditation surpasses both that of mortals and that of our hearts. People who reach such understanding free themselves from all appearances without effort. <laughs> and cure all illnesses without treatment. All illnesses, including the illness of greed, anger, and delusion. Such is the power of great sin. Using the mind to look for reality is delusion. Not using the mind to look for reality is awareness. And in this awareness is the seed of virtue. Freeing oneself from words is liberation. Including freeing yourself from Bodhidharma's words. 
Bodhidharma is credited with the line concerning the practice of Zen, a special transmission from mind to mind outside words and scriptures. Words can be used to shake you up. Bodhidharma does that better than anyone I know. But you have to free yourself from words. You have to free yourself from words about the past and words about the future and <laughs> words about enlightenment and words about dukkha. You have to get past all of that. Dig, dig deep, keep digging. So you break through, or you wake up, as Bodhidharma called his sermon. Freeing oneself from words is liberation. Remaining unblemished by the dust of sensation is guarding the Dharma. Unblemished by the dust of sensation. So we talked about the three objects, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. Remaining unblemished by the dust of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is guarding the Dharma. Transcending life and death is leaving home. Transcending life and death doesn't mean you never die. Everyone dies, including Bodhidharma. But life and death as the process that we are undergoing every moment Transcending that dualism, yes, no, this, that, me, you, going beyond all of that, that is leaving home, leaving home being to follow the, the way, the way of death. Not suffering another existence is reaching the way. Not creating delusions is enlightenment. Not engaging in ignorance is wisdom. No affliction is nirvana. And no appearance of the mind is the other shore. Now that's a really rich, almost imponderable statement. No appearance of the mind. And you have to ask, what is he talking about? No appearance of the mind? No mind. But he started by saying, not thinking about anything is Zen. Not by being trapped by your opinions, your prejudices, your I want this, I want to be saved from that. No appearance of these thought formation, this emotional reaction, 
Again, he said the essence of the way is detachment. And everything that he says, however many phrases he adds on, it all is like, to use a, a musical expression, variations on a theme. He sets forth the theme of the essence of the way is detachment and the goal of those who practice is freedom from appearances. And that seems reasonable. And everything that comes after that is just variations on that theme. Variations that become more and more difficult for us to swallow and yet which have to be swallowed, have to be digested. No affliction is nirvana. And no appearance of the mind is the other shore. When you're deluded, this shore exists. This sure is samsara, our daily encounter with dukkha. When you wake up, it doesn't exist. Mortals stay on this shore. But those who discover the greatest of all vehicles stay on neither this shore nor the other shore. This is the essence of Mahayana Buddhism. This is the essence of the Bodhisattva way. Staying neither on this shore nor on the other shore. Being in samsara Knowing samsara is nirvana. Nirvana is samsara. Being attached neither to this shore nor the other shore. Those who discover the greatest of all vehicles stay on neither this shore nor the other shore. They're able to leave both shores, they are free. That's what liberation means. Not dwelling here or there or anywhere. That's what leaving home means. Those who see the other shore as different from this shore don't understand Zen. Delusion means mortality, and awareness means Buddhahood. They're not the same, and they're not different. Samsara is samsara, and nirvana is nirvana. But nirvana is samsara, and samsara is nirvana. And this daily grind of dukkha is no other than the Buddha nature. Oh, it's weird. It's just that people distinguish delusion from awareness. When we're deluded, there's a world to escape. And so we have so many expectations and hopes for the future. If I just practice for 10 more years, I'll be enlightened and then everything will be okay. But when we're aware, there's nothing to escape. 
Bodhidharma's wake-up song. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.